It's more important than ever to try to understand not just where this stuff comes from, but why it's so omnipresent. During the fall of 2018, historian Victoria Saker-Wiesty visited University of Virginia to discuss the timely topic of anti-Semitism and the origins of fake news as part of a series of talks entitled When the Fascists Came to Town, Reflections on the Radical Right from Weimar to Charlottesville. The conversation centered on American industrialist Henry Ford, founder of the Ford Motor Company. There was something called a sociological department at the Ford Motor Company that monitored the home lives of many of the immigrant workers, many of the migrant black workers that were coming up from the South to work in his factories. And he really did feel that he had this moral authority to regulate the lives, the private lives, of his labor force. And he extended that to the country through his ghost-written um, autobiographies, through his sponsorship of radio broadcasts, and his purchase of this little sleepy hometown newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, which becomes his megaphone to the people. And he used the Ford Motor Company and its activities to attain a circulation of hundreds of thousands of copies per issue. Ford car dealers were given quotas of the newspaper sales that they had to make every month. You buy a Model T, you're going to get a, a subscription to the Dearborn Independent. The content published by the Dearborn Independent had little to do with cars, and Henry Ford was personally involved in the production of its issues, which consisted largely of anti-Semitic screeds against what it called the International Jew. Eventually, one of the Dearborn Independent's libels drew a lawsuit from Aaron Sapiro, a lawyer and leader of the farmers' movement in the American West. And in 1925, he served notice that he was going to sue in federal court in Detroit for libel on behalf of himself and on behalf of all Jews generally. Join us in this retelling of the often forgotten history of how during the 1920s, a billionaire used an obscure local newspaper to fuel the global spread of anti-Semitic literature, and in doing so, sparked a legal debate over the limits of free speech and hate speech in American society. Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. This episode is recorded in conjunction with our series, Deporting Ottoman Americans, which focuses on the stories of immigrants from the Ottoman Empire who, for various reasons, were ordered to be deported from the U.S. during the 1930s. Visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, to check out the episodes of our series as well as our many bonus interviews. In this episode, we'll be talking to a scholar whose work has intersected with our program in a variety of ways. Victoria Saker-Wiesti. Vicki, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. Victoria Saker-Wiesti is a research professor at the American Bar Foundation, and she's author of the 2012 book, Henry Ford's War on Jews and the Legal Battle Against Hate Speech. Now, for those who aren't very familiar with the subject, the, the first thing that would stand out about that title of that book, Henry Ford's War on Jews and the Legal 
battle against hate speech is the notion that Henry Ford had a war on Jews. This isn't necessarily something that uh, everyone is familiar with. And certainly Ford is a a very well-known figure in our culture and has this celebrity which uh, endures to this day. Uh, Before we get to that subject, maybe we could just briefly sketch out for our listeners who Henry Ford was beyond Henry Ford, the businessman, beyond the industrials, beyond this person who's known to have so fundamentally shaped um, the economy of the United States and the way industrial production takes place, and especially the production of the automobile, sort of one of the quintessential American uh, products. What was Henry Ford's influence like beyond that economic realm and the political realm and the social realm and the cultural realm did he have this sort of did he have this sort of power that transcended merely his ability to manufacture good and affordable motor vehicles yeah so one of the things that's truly remarkable about ford one of the things that he pioneered uh, quite apart from his industrial innovations was that he parlayed his fame and his wealth into a position as a kind of cultural barometer for the country. Uh, And he did this through a variety of different mechanisms and media. So uh, one thing he did was um, uh, he would grant interviews to the press almost every single day. So he cultivated a press relationship uh, really beginning even before the $5 day wage in 1914. Um, but the, that, that particular move was what catapulted him into the stratosphere in terms of his status as cultural icon. You know, here is the benevolent industrial king, cares about his workers, wants them to be able to buy his car. But as we know from, you know, the really insightful biographies of the man, he saw this as yet another form of social control, right? So his workers... Uh, were not to use alcohol. They were to go to church on Sunday. There was something called a sociological department at the Ford Motor Company that monitored the home lives of many of the immigrant workers, many of the migrant black workers that were coming up from the South to work in his factories. And he really did feel that he had this moral authority to regulate the lives, the private lives of his labor force. And he extended that to the country through his ghostwritten um, autobiographies, through his uh, um, sponsorship of radio broadcasts, and quite um, significantly, his purchase and uh, recasting of this little sleepy hometown newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, which becomes his megaphone to the people. You know, people, historians now talk about Fordism sort of as an ideology, like a kind of social Mm -hmm. engineering almost in which, you know, Ford is a very influential figure. And of course, the idea of society as factory sort of uh, controlled factory environment had all sorts of ramifications Mm -hmm. as it really went into use uh, all throughout the world from, you know, the West to the Soviet Union, etc. But let's let's talk more about the Dearborn Independent. You know, as you said, a little old newspaper in Dearborn, just a a suburb of Detroit, Mm -hmm. uh, which, of course, is growing rapidly with the automotive industry and and manufacturing that's going on there. Uh, And you say in your book that at one point, the Dearborn Independent reached uh, a circulation of 700,000 people, which 
was substantially more than the population of Dearborn, I think we oh, can yeah. comfortably say. We can. So, assuming that every person in Dearborn got a copy, which we don't know for sure about that, uh, where did the rest of the circulation come from? How did Ford resurrect this newspaper and why? Yeah, so this is a really fascinating story. Um, you know, you hear a lot today about, you know, the filter of the mainstream media. Well, that's how Ford felt about the press and and that that animosity. I mean, he had this love-hate relationship with the press because he used the press, he manipulated the press, mm-hmm. he created his image refracting himself through the lens of the press, mm-hmm. but the press didn't always do what he wanted, right? And, you know, talk to the presidents of the country, right? That's not, that's how the press works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the press is not this sort of monolithic whole thing. It's, 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 you know, it's a, a quite a conglomerate mm-hmm. of different interests, different kinds of, you know, corporate ownerships and right. uh, different kinds of readers. And this actually dovetails with uh, the emergence of Ford's public expression of his anti-Semitism. So during World War I, he began to say publicly that Jews had caused World War I. They had deliberately fomented war and their purpose in doing so was to make money and incidentally to cause the downfall of established European governments. So he begins to sort of spin out this theory, you know, very conspiratorial, right. uh, rooted in European anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic uh, propaganda and uh, uh, sort of subversive um, uh, European precursors to the Nazi party. Maybe a little projection as well. And a lot making, of projection. Making money off war. Making money off war, exactly. In fact, that's one of the promises he makes during World War One that any of his contracts that he make, that he takes from the government, uh, he will return all the profits. And of course, he never did. And no one ever held him accountable for that failure. Mm-hmm. So, And the same thing happens in World War Two. But anyway, back to the Dearborn Independent. So he decides, after losing a really embarrassing libel lawsuit to the, New York, to the Chicago Tribune, mm-hmm. uh, which had editorialized that he was an ignorant idealist and an anarchist, the, the jury found the Tribune guilty, but awarded six cents in damages. And that was a trouble damage award. So his damages were two cents because in fact he was ignorant. Um, And he displayed it on the stand despite his attorney's attempts to to prep him. So he buys the Dearborn Independent uh, for a nominal sum, uh, buys a printing press, personally re-engineers it and recasts it in the factory of the Ford Motor Company and starts printing a newspaper in 1919. And um, certain of his staff members that were close to him, um, in particular his secretary, Ernest Liebold, who was German, started uh, sort of filtering the kind of information he was receiving. And one of the sources they put in front of him in 1919 was the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was already notorious Mm -hmm. as a falsified anti-Semitic screed uh, that spins out you know, that same conspiratorial worldview, but does so in the voice of Jews themselves. So it's kind of a confessional, right? Here we are plotting our plans to undermine democracy, to undermine monarchical government, to undermine world finance, and, you know, here's how we're going to do it. So if you believe in any aspect of that theory, then the protocols will ratify 
every suspicion you've ever harbored and then some. So after World War I, after that libel suit, after, you know, some other embarrassing uh, PR catastrophes, Ford decides that it's time for him to evade the mainstream media and take his message directly to the American people. And that's what he does with the Dearborn Independent. And so is this, this is a newspaper people buy? Oh, right. That was your question. And the answer to that is no. The Dearborn Independent did not sell ads. And it was distributed free of charge uh, on the streets of major cities. And Ford dealers, Ford car dealers were given quotas of the newspaper sales that they had to make every month. And uh, Ford Motor Company kept track and would pressure the dealers. If they fell short one month, they had to make it up the next month. So you buy a Model T, you're going to get a, a subscription to the Dearborn Independent. So in a way, Ford had his own, his distribution network sort of map out his uh, his communications strategy, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. with the car, you got the newspaper. And they sent it also to libraries, to schools, to hospitals, to all kinds of governmental institutions that had, you know, depositories of reading material. And they sent it through the mail, which, you know, was one way that opponents tried to, you know, attack the circulation of the newspaper, but they were not able to do that. It just didn't work as a legal strategy. So Henry Ford is leveraging his power as an industrialist to mass disseminate anti-Semitic literature. Yeah. <laughs> so essentially, it sounds crazy mm-hmm. because, first of all, the Protocols of the Elders Zion, it's, it's a notorious text. It's not something a reputable person would do. Maybe not now. Maybe not now. But back then, coming from Henry Ford himself, it had tremendous credibility. Right. And the other thing is, you know, the kind of anti-Semitic worldview that the protocols evoked and that Ford was deeply steeped in, that was, you know, that was a pretty accepted attitude Mm -hmm. in American society. You know, unlike um, African-Americans who faced all kinds of, you know, enacted legislative discrimination, um, Jews were pretty uh, free from that kind of, um, you know, civil inhibition, but they faced tons and tons of social and informal discrimination uh, in schools and social clubs and the professions, you know, uh, where they lived. For instance, when Ford moved his uh, home from Detroit to Dearborn, Jews were not allowed to buy uh, property in Dearborn until the 1950s. And so one of uh, Ford's good friends at the time, a rabbi, Rabbi Franklin, uh, couldn't move out to Dearborn with Ford. And that was the kind of thing that Ford gave no thought to at all, hmm. you know. And eventually, Rabbi Franklin broke with Ford over the Dearborn Independent and its publication of the Protocols. One of the things I've learned in researching this series of, uh, on, you know, immigration history of the 1920s and 30s is just how much the general concern around immigrants and the attempts to stop immigrants from coming in the country, um, for some people... Uh, especially some of the people who are most influential in sort of framing the laws that enacted these immigration quotas, it was really about keeping out Jews, not just because they were one of the largest immigrant immigrant groups, but also for what they represented in all sorts of ways. And so when I think of Ford, one thing that immediately comes to mind is not just the role of um, Jewish activists in labor movements of the time, which is known, but also the, um, the Red Scare, 
of the end of the, the First World War period, this idea that the Jews were a global vectors of communism. Is that something that went into Ford's motivation? Was it calculating in this regard? Was this like a deliberate attempt to undermine labor movements and, and seeing um, you know, Jews as part of that? Or I don't know how intentionally Ford connected these movements, that is, the spread of Bolshevism uh, after the Russian Revolution and the rise of labor unions. We know, of course, he was inimicably hostile to organization in his factory and resisted it quite violently in the 1930s. Um, and the same henchmen that bashed in heads on the Battle of the Overpass in 1937 were also the same people that were enabling uh, the publication and dissemination of the independent. And it's no coincidence that Ford's entry into the national conversation on immigration takes place at this time when the anti-immigration debate was as heated and as polarizing as it is today. And the quota system that was put into place by the Immigration Act of 1924 hit Jews particularly hard, mm -hmm. especially because many of them were still trying to refugee out of Eastern Europe, um, where violence against Jews was sadly commonplace. So there, there are a lot of these strings, you know, get woven together, you know, in with the benefit of hindsight. I don't know, you know, how much Ford really grasped the complexity and the multiplicity of these causal factors, these different social contexts coming together. But, you know, it met the moment. There's no question that the Dearborn Independent had an audience that it reached, that um, there were thousands of Americans that were ready to follow Ford into the White House to put him there, to keep him there if they had the chance. And, you know, there are thousands and thousands of letters in the Ford archives of people that wrote in saying, this is great stuff you're publishing, keep it up. You know, I see this all the time. I'm f frustrated because I'm taken advantage of by these, you know, by these Jewish middlemen who, you know, are, have no ethics and who are sharp dealers. And, you know, the, the whole sort of stereotype gets spun out. And um, uh, it really found a home. The, the seam of American anti-Semitism, you know, in, in the American social soil, it was there and Ford tapped into it. Yeah. No question about it. Yeah. Well, when you mentioned this idea, this this looming idea for years that people thought Henry Ford might run for president or that he flirted with the right. idea of political ambition uh, and then people supported it. it. It is quite interesting to hear that. How close were the conditions to a world in which Henry Ford became president? We can't say for sure. Maybe here we'll take a small break and play a little clip. This is a sort of comic satire, old digitized record from that time period, from the 30s, toying with the idea that maybe Henry Ford should run for president. Since we're talking about it, we'll uh, play that for our listeners. And then what we'll do is come back and talk about the heart of your work, Vicky, which is actually the lawsuit that Ford got himself into as a result of this uh, Dearborn Independent publication. So stay tuned. Toastmaster, gentlemen, you too, politician. Democrats are the middle-of-the-road party. The Republicans are the straddle-of-the-road party. So I hereby nominate Mr. Henry Ford. 
president and christen the party the All Over the Road Party. In the first place, it's too bad he is the competent. That is the only thing that'll beat him. Miss Ford's a good friend of mine, and years ago, he overlooked the suggestion that would have made him immortal. It was when he went over to stop the war. I wanted him to take the girls we had in the Follies and let them wear the same costumes they wore in the show and march them down between the trenches. Believe me, the boys would have been out before Christmas. He has made more money than any man in the world by paying the highest wages. Yet, you don't even manufacture necessities. Neither would you call it a luxury. It just kind of comes under the heading of knick-knack. I was at his home last year and happened to ask him that in case of a stiff opposition, just how cheap he could sell his car. He said, why, well, by controlling the selling of the parts, I, I could give the cars away. He said, why, those uh, things would shake off enough bolts in the year to pay for themselves. Second year, that's just pure profit. People think Dr. Cooey was the originator of auto-suggestion, but Miss Ford is. He originated all those suggestions when he made the synopsis of a car. He has just recently lowered the price, $50. That's done to discourage thievery. He is the first man that ever took a joke and made it practical. So let's let him take this country. Maybe he can repeat. He should make a good political race, as he carries two-thirds of this country now. There's no reason why there shouldn't be a Ford in the White House or everywhere else. He's the only man that could make Congress earn their salaries. He would start a bill through and give each one something to tack on to it. When it come out, it would be ready to use. He is the only man that when Congress started stalling could lift up the hood and see what was the matter with it. Some are against him because he don't know history. What we need in there is a man that can make history, not recite it. Now, if Mr. Ford will just take another one of my suggestions, he can be elected. If he will just make one speech and say, Voters, if I am elected, I will change the front on them. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Victoria saker Wiesti talking about her book, Henry Ford's War on Jews and the Legal Battle Against Hate Speech. Uh, we've just sort of set up the context. Who is Henry Ford? How did he get involved in publishing this newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, sort of disseminating uh, this newspaper and specifically using it as a as a means of propagating uh, anti-Semitic rhetoric uh, and ideas. This was like the main body of the newspaper. Like mm-hmm. we have to make that clear. Now, what happens to Ford, as you talk about in your book, is that he's sued over his yeah uh, activities mm-hmm. for essentially yeah. defaming or or, or libeling libeling. Uh, the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the context, how this yeah. comes about? So this is a really sort of, in a way, technical point in libel law, but it has so much resonance for how people f- since then have thought about the question of group identity. So most of the notable um, Jewish Americans that Ford rakes over the coals in the newspaper decide not to sue. There's a series of discussions, the Jewish community is very divided, but they decide in the end, let's not dignify this with an answer. And, you know, the first series of articles that's based on the protocol ceases publication in 1922, and things go quiet for a while. 
And then in 1924, a series begins attacking a Jewish lawyer named Aaron Sapiro, who was organizing farmers into collectives. Now, Ford felt that he was the patron saint of American agriculture. You know, he invented the Fordson tractor, had been produced for these people. He, you know, he made their mobility, their social lives transform, you know, with access to the car. So he really felt that those were his people, and he did not appreciate someone introducing the idea of collective action to farmers, you know, who, after all, were the celebrated individuals of the sort of Jeffersonian vision, right? So um, the attack on Aaron Sapiro uh, in the Dearborn Independent attacked, began by attacking the idea of cooperation. And incidentally, Aaron Sapiro and his Jewish pals were behind this. And then when the agricultural community reacted strongly and negatively to that and wrote Ford saying, hey, you know, don't knock this. It's actually helping farmers survive the economic turmoil of the 20s. So halfway through the series, changes emphasis and begins to attack Aaron Sapiro as a lawyer individually, um, everything from his ethics to his, you know, relations with the cooperatives that he founded, uh, his relationship with uh, the USDA, every aspect of his public life got filtered through, you know, the fact that he was Jewish and therefore was part of this international cabal uh, and was enslaving American farmers, was, you know, uh, misleading them, misrepresenting them, every crime you could allege against a lawyer. Uh, they threw at Aaron Sapiro, and Aaron Sapiro was not part of the Jewish American sort of uh, East Coast establishment. You know, he wasn't at all connected to the American Jewish Committee or um, uh, the American Jewish Congress or, you know, their leaders. He was a complete outsider. He was from the West Coast, based in Chicago. So he had had enough. And in 1925, he served notice that he was going to sue in federal court in Detroit for libel on behalf of himself and behalf of and on behalf of all Jews generally. And so this is where things get interesting legally because at the time there were some states that had passed laws that would have permitted that suit with that cause of action to proceed. But Michigan was not one of them. So when the case comes up for pretrial hearing, the judge rules that no, Aaron Sapiro can only sue for damages to himself individually. He cannot sue on behalf of anyone else or on behalf of any other group. So that's the technical legal ruling, and that's how the case proceeded. But that is not how the press characterized the trial. In fact, there are headlines that read, you know, the Jews put Henry Ford on trial. So it's characterized as a group versus the publisher, libel lawsuit. It's characterized as the Jews going after Henry Ford. And that isn't how it proceeded in the courtroom. But that is how popular culture, uh, how newspapers covered it, and how the, the sort of crystallization of the image of this case formed in the American sort of collective mind. So that's what's really interesting about this case is that disconnect between what was happening in the courtroom and the coverage of the case. Which is ironic because they legally couldn't have like a collective uh, hate speech, any kind of defamation suit like that against 
a, an entire group of people because there was no such concept on the books in Michigan, as you say. No, no. And it didn't really spread very much beyond the six or seven states that, that did have these laws on the books. And then eventually it, it just falls off the, the radar of American First Amendment law. And, and, you know, this is why we don't criminalize hate speech. We don't criminalize Holocaust denial. You know, we do not treat hate speech like most other European countries. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, this might be a side question, but what did the ACLU at the time say about this particular case? They must have, it must have been on their radar. It was, um, but they didn't get involved. They did actually um, write a letter of support in, on behalf of the Dearborn Independent when the, the newspaper sued to forestall the enforcement of injunctions against distribution of this newspaper on city streets. So let me put that better. So certain cities in the Midwest, fearing that newspaper boys crying out the headlines of the Dearborn Independent (laughs) would incite riots. And so they said, they passed ordinances, no sales of the Dearborn Independent on the city streets. And the Dearborn Independent sued, the ACLU weighed in, this is definitely a prior restraint. And the federal court ruled in favor of Ford's newspaper. Mm. So, you know, prior restraint law, as we understand it, that was pretty robustly understood even then. But when it came to this individual libel suit, there really wasn't much role of a role for the ACLU to play because it wasn't the government that was doing the censoring or the libeling. You know, this was one private individual versus another private individual and his privately owned corporation. The, the really interesting silence came from the Jewish establishment, which did not want this suit to proceed and did, you know, everything it could really to undermine it. <laughs> right. That's one of the paradoxes in the book. Mm-hmm. It was hard. I had to read the beginning twice to understand what was going on. Ford's lawyer in the case was actually a prominent Jewish lawyer. Oh, yes. Louis Marshall. Yeah. Well, he wasn't the lawyer in the case, but he is the lawyer that Ford turns to right. after, you know, this incredibly improbable series of events results in a mistrial. Ford, in, while his own lawyers are heading for, you know, rescheduling a new trial, he sends sort of foot soldiers to New York City to ask Louis Marshall, the president of the American Jewish Committee, you know, who had basically tangled with Ford throughout the decade over this whole mess to ask him to intervene, to write him a statement that will end the litigation. And for reasons having to do with Marshall's own understanding of and belief in uh, what Jews needed to do to gain acceptance, not just socially, but legally as full citizens. He agreed to write this statement, and he writes it in a way that completely wipes out the record of what had been established at trial, which was that Ford had, in fact, authorized the publication, that he knew about it, that he, you know, he was in the newspaper offices every day supervising what was happening. And instead, the statement he signs says, I had no idea what my trusted employees were doing in my name. Mm. And I was dismayed and appalled to think that, you know, my Jewish brothers and sisters thought I felt this way and I will do everything I can to make it up to them, including, you know, stopping publication of the newspaper and settling the uh, the litigation out of court. Um, And the other thing Marshall really wanted him to do, which he includes in the apology, is to take the book version of all of these articles 
which had been circulating mm -hmm. in the millions of copies all over the world, out of circulation. But that was toothpaste out of the tube. There was no way Marshall could get Ford to follow through on that promise, even if Ford had wanted to. The book was uncopyrighted, right. and there was no legal recourse for Ford, uh, you know, as owner of the book, which conferred no rights on him, especially in Europe, to to get these publishers to to withdraw their publications of the book. And he wasn't willing to pay them to do it, which is what they asked for. And that left Marshall looking, you know, in fact, rather silly. I mean, he was taken advantage of. He was... He was played, unfortunately. Um, his, you know, his real determination to try to undo the international Jew, while admirable, was it was not possible for him to to accomplish that. Yeah, and you know that's the tragedy of the case. Absolutely, and uh, I'll just mention that when I was looking for your book, I found many different copies of the International Jew by Henry Ford right. being printed on Amazon and sold because, and sold. as you said, it's out of copyright. Anyone yeah. can sell a copy of right. it, essentially. And here's the really sad thing. Before the suit was settled, the publishers published the book without an author on it. But after the suit is settled, Ford's name starts to appear as the <laughs> author, You know, which really had to have gotten Marshall's goat because that was the last thing he wanted was for this book to have the the sort of literary credibility right. that Ford's name gave it, you know, but it be, you know it becomes this huge international phenomenon. It rivals the protocols now in terms mm -hmm. of you know the sort of canon of anti-Semitic literature. It's right. as available online, and you know anybody with a printing press can self-publish it, yeah. and it's 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 out there. Yeah. It it has this infinite half-life you can find it in probably in every country of the world every country every language it's uh it's truly um you know a cancer that just will never go away and and as you know uh quite famously ford is one of the few americans who's explicitly mentioned as a positive figure by adolf hitler hitler himself hitler planted a reporter for his german newspaper in the courtroom so dispatches were appearing in Germany within a day or two of, you know, the events taking place right. in Dearborn. So there, Hitler was watching this case. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the newspaper famously dismissed the apology as, you know, only the, only the Jews could bring someone as powerful as Henry Ford to his knees. So, you know, there's no way to win against this because even the apology yeah. doesn't carry any credibility with the anti-Semitic world. It just doesn't. It right. didn't then, and it, it means nothing now. And, of course, European anti-Semites are not actually necessarily learning about these anti-Semitic ideas through Ford. It's What's really crucial there is, like, can we get away with this? What will happen if this is... And, and Ford is a good example of someone getting away, away with it. Because one example, like, one tangible outcome of this case is that Americans today don't know that Henry Ford had this side to him. Right. It's not in the history books. It's it's obviously scrubbed from Henry Ford's own Museum of Americana in Dearborn, the Henry Ford Museum, which, you know, among other things, has a collection of presidential limousines. It has, you know, it's like a mini Smithsonian. There's not a single word, not a single ex exhibit 
that uh, that ref, you know points to the truth of Henry Ford's career as a hate speech publisher. So, and when the book came out, and you know, anytime something comes out about Ford's ties to Nazi Germany, for instance, the, the Ford Motor Company just ignores it. There was one notable exception. Um, in 2000, a writer published an account of the correspondence between um, Henry and Edsel Ford and the Ford plant in Berlin, which had been taken over by the Nazis. It showed, you know, complicity. It showed, you know, connivance with the enemy, you know, pretty treasonable stuff. And the Ford uh, Motor Company uh, set a couple of historians to the task of refuting that, mm-hmm. which, you know, is not all that persuasive from my point of view, but uh, it muddies the waters enough to suggest reasonable doubt, and that's all they need, you know. But the the Ford Motor Company, you know, has done a number of things to try to atone, you know, most notably through the Ford Foundation and uh, support of Israel and uh, Jewish philanthropy in the United States, but they've never disowned the founders' um, the founders' racism, the founders' record, and they continue to use him, you know, as a as a touchstone of the company's identity. So there's a little bit of, you know, corporate accountability that should happen there that hasn't. And it's difficult for them to do because they've been selling not just the cars, but Ford. The and brand. Fordism, the, the, the notion of what he represents. Yeah, they have not changed that logo, you know, Ford. The, the script Ford with the circle, the oval around it, that's the original Ford logo. It is it is untouchable. That That's what you're buying. And they know it. So it's a very valuable brand. Well, Vicki, I appreciate you talking to me today during your visit to your alma mater, alma University mater. of Virginia. It's, it's always, always such a pleasure to come back to UVA. Um, it looks, of course, a, a, a completely changed campus, but the lawn never changes. And, you know, the the friendships that I still have. My oldest friend is the guy I met my second day on grounds. You know, I will always love UVA, you know, warts and all. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. But it is a truly exceptional place. And, this, you know, the students I met here yesterday and the seminar, the workshop I had, uh, it was just such an enriching, nourishing intellectual experience. I, I'm so grateful. Yeah. And we're grateful too because you know UVA needs you these days. <laughs> Your work has is one of many works on that period of American history which just seems to resonate with some of the social phenomena we're seeing. And I'm really glad that I can contribute to this post-August 2017 conversation. It's so important. Um, it's more important than ever to try to understand not just where this stuff comes from, but why it's so omnipresent. You know, it, it bubbles up to the surface and sometimes violently so. It never has gone away. It's always there. Well, on that note, yeah. I guess we'll uh, invite our listeners to check out the book, Henry Ford's War on Jews and the Legal Battle Against Hate Speech by Victoria Saker Wiesti. Uh, Also visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, for bibliography uh, and for episodes of our series, uh, Deporting Ottoman Americans. That's all for this episode. Thank you for tuning in and join us next time in another episode of Ottoman History Podcast.